The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. This week, we're going to hear from someone we haven't heard from in a while. Since Senate President Stan Rosenberg stepped down in late 2017, then resigned from the Senate in 2018 after decades in elected office on Beacon Hill, he's been keeping out of the public eye. But he's back, working in the public policy world again. We were curious where he's been, what he's been up to, and what he thinks of the issues before Beacon Hill in 2020. As part of his agreement to come on the show, which we taped on Tuesday, Rosenberg declined to discuss the circumstances of his departure from the legislature. That came after an investigation into alleged sexual assaults and harassment committed by his husband. Former Senate President Stan Rosenberg joins us on the takeout for a conversation with Matt Murphy, associate editor of the Statehouse News Service. Well, welcome, Stan Rosenberg, to the podcast. It's uh, been a while since you and I have talked, and it's uh, certainly good to hear your voice again. And it's been a little over two years now since you uh, left the Senate and left uh, Beacon Hill. And uh, while we are not here today to uh, relive all of that, we are curious, what have you been up to? Well, uh, as soon as I left Boston, I started a consulting practice and uh for about a year and a half or so, uh, that consulting practice was involving organizations that are doing a variety of things um, that I'm interested in, and some are very consistent and carry over from the kind of work I did for many years uh, on Beacon Hill. So I'm working with a, a small nonprofit that's trying to encourage energy conservation by engaging with uh, school with students and their teachers and then moving into the community with the projects that the students research uh, bring into the community through a, a cooler community fair it's called a community cooler communities and uh, educating their families and the community at large about what they can do to help reduce uh, their carbon footprint and address climate change through energy conservation and and um, switching to other modes of uh, energy use and production. Another project I'm working on, very excited about, is um, uh, an advanced manufacturing initiative to create a lab in Amherst, a mile and a half from the UMass Amherst campus, that will bring together academics and private sector researchers and business developers to develop new methods and processes for manufacturing that can uh, first bring manufacturing home uh, from overseas and uh, second to use uh, all of the modern technologies, uh, things like uh, laser and 3D printing um, to build things as large as buildings and boats and airplanes, et cetera. And so uh, this is a, a major initiative um, that was ongoing for about three years before I connected with them. And I've been working with them for about a year and a half now. And uh, 
we're making great progress toward uh, creating this lab, which will be an ecosystem of research, development, and um, preparing projects and products for the marketplace that are created uh, and manufactured through uh, these new technologies and new platforms. That's so a very exciting uh, project. The one that's uh, putting bread on the table uh, <laughs> is actually um, I'm working with a company to uh, develop a integrated cannabis um, presence in Massachusetts, um, uh, cultivation, processing, manufacturing, and three retail sites. And we're making great progress. They're going to be opening their cultivation facility in Worcester um, next year. And we are in negotiations for two host community agreements, and we have one host community agreement locked down. So, and there are a few other smaller projects. And about, oh, I would say, a year and a half ago, year year to a year and a half ago, some of the clients that I've been working with said they wanted me to be able to interact with state government agencies and legislators, which meant that I could only do that if I registered. And so I finally uh, bit the bullet and I registered with the Secretary of State. And um, so I'm now uh, among the minions. <laughs> Very interesting. Uh, who would have thought you'd be a registered lobbyist now? I was, you not, actually. Not me. <laughs> Never in a thousand <laughs> years did I think that. <laughs> you actually stole my next question since I was going to ask if you were uh, still uh, closely plugged into what was going on on the Hill or still talking to your colleagues. It appears the answer is uh, yes, since some of your work is is touching some of the public policy uh, here on the Hill. And, and now you are uh, officially registered to uh, lobby your former uh, colleagues. H have you started that work yet? And, and how uh, weird has that experience been for you? Well, uh, I'm, I have started it and I've been doing it pro bono for three uh, nonprofits, small organizations, and I've been doing it uh, for pay uh, with three, four, yeah, maybe four at this point. And I had to file my first uh, report. Uh, I registered February 7th, I think it was, of 2020. And um, I, I had to file my first report in uh, so June, July 1st, I guess it is. And, mm -hmm. and I did so. Um, so, you know, I don't have a lot of contact with my colleagues in relation to the uh, work that I'm doing. Um, Actually, the the largest amount of contact that I've had has really been around the around the um, uh, advanced manufacturing project, um, and that's not a paying client yet. someday um, I hope it will reach the point. But I'm doing that one out of passion, and it's a way of helping UMass move to its next level out here in terms of economic development and for decades I worked on trying to help stimulate economic development here with the university and the town and the region and this project just was so exciting and when I heard about it and they asked me to help them out I, I joined the team. But I have some contact but not a lot and, and I'm following public policy issues to some degree but I am frankly spending more time uh, building my business than 
following the detail of public policy, but you know, you can't do this for 40 years and then just shut the door completely and walk away. Policy is my thing. It's always been my thing. Politics had, I had to do politics because that was the environment in which I could do the policy. <laughs> so um, people used to call me a policy wonk and I, I believe that was my strength. <laughs> well, we're gonna actually start here with a little bit of politics. Um, before we dive into some of the policy uh, that has uh, dominated the past year on Beacon Hill, and since it is breaking today, and uh, you are someone who uh, worked as a legislator uh, with Governor Romney, I was curious what your reaction was to him today coming out saying that he would support uh, the United States Senate considering a Trump nominee to fill Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat on the Supreme Court. Uh, we saw uh, a House member from Acton, a new representative uh, who was not uh, there when you were in the building, uh, tweeting, uh, there's a special place in hell for you, Senator Romney. You really are the spineless sellout we always knew you to be. Uh, harsh words from Representative Tammy Govea of Acton, but a curious your thoughts. Uh, on on Romney, who uh, I think a lot of people thought may have been one of those senators who would uh, join with the Democrats and uh, call for a delay. Uh, disappointment, obviously. I'm very disappointed in that. I had not heard that he did, he did that. But, you know, um, I have to say, as a former member of the legislature, when I look back, there are some regrets in terms of votes that I took. And there were times when, um, uh, even more so, I regret that I, I went along once with it and didn't like it. And then it happened a second time where we changed the rules for partisan purposes instead of allowing the rules to stand and for things to play out as they should have. And I know people were probably considering the same thing again if Elizabeth Warren had been named um, uh, vice presidential candidate uh, by, by Mr. Biden. Um, and who knows if she or Mr. Markey get invited into the cabinet and they accept, we could be back in the same situation. And. So the first time I was very uneasy with it. Um, and the more I thought about it, I realized we shouldn't be changing the rules like this. And then we did it again. And so, you know, I, I, I have to take my lashes for that one. And I, I think this, it's, a, it's a sign of hypocrisy, if you will, to keep changing the rules to accommodate your political party's interest. And it was just a short while ago <laughs> that the Republicans blocked in the exact same situation Mr. Obama from naming a uh, Supreme Court justice. And now they're going to rush to name the same. The same party that blocked that is now going to rush to name a judge. Mm. And I understand exactly what it's about. And it's all about the politics and the party and blah, 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 blah. But it's uh, seeing this play out, you know, in Washington after having lived it in Massachusetts. I'm both regretful about it in terms of 
votes that I took in the past mm. and also just really hurting over the fact that uh, this kind of a manipulation is going to play out four and years after they did the exact same thing to Obama. And you are, of course, talking about the two times the legislature uh, changed the rules for uh, appointing uh, senators in the case of a vacancy the first time when it was a thought that John Kerry might be on his way to the White House. Uh, that did not come to pass the second time being after Senator uh, Kennedy's death and the rules were changed to allow the governor to appoint uh, and then have a special uh, interim uh, a senator until a special election could be held. That was done uh, when there was a Democratic governor uh, in charge. Uh, since uh, the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, we have uh, seen a major push uh, from advocates to pass a piece of legislation that has been uh, pending in the legislature this session called the Roe Act. This would uh, expand some access uh, to abortion rights in Massachusetts, uh, including uh, some later term abortions in cases where uh, the mother's health may be at risk. Um, if you were still there, do you would you be pushing to uh, to pass the Roe Act this session in, in light of what's happened uh, at the Supreme Court now? Absolutely, and this is not a new a new idea. Uh, Governor Baker and the legislatures put a lot of energy in the first four years of the Trump administration to pass legislation when necessary in order to protect our own way of life, our own policies, our own priorities, things uh, that we think are important for the people of Massachusetts. And just because we're part of the United States of America does not mean that our voices should be silenced when we see things that um, are being undone that should be preserved. Uh, and we did things in the environment, we did things in uh, in the social uh, sphere, social policy, and including, if I remember correctly, we did um, uh, another piece of legislation that related to choice. And we had a, a signing and a celebration, maybe it wasn't a signing, we had a celebration, at least in the in the State House Library on, on that occasion and celebrated Senator Chandler and a few of the other women legislators who led that fight. So yeah, we need to protect our own interests and wherever the federal government is letting us down under any administration, we should speak and act for ourselves in wherever we have and can have our own control. And we may lose some of these things in the process with um, the federal constitution and federal laws um, uh, overriding our policies, but where we have the ability to speak by voting for and putting into law what we believe, we should do it and deal with whatever the outfall later might be. Well, as we uh, you know alluded to in the top of the show, you spent uh, I think about 32 years in the legislature uh, divided uh, between the House and the Senate, most of that time uh, in the Senate, which uh, gives you a, a rather unique perspective the few outsiders have into the workings of the legislature. And still, I uh, would assume that even you would agree that you have not seen a year or a legislative session like the one uh, we are currently living through uh, right now. How well or uh, not well, do you think Beacon Hill has responded uh, so far to the COVID-19 crisis? 
I think uh, generally uh, responded very well. Um, it's really, really challenging to move legislation and to work on legislation when you're all gathered and see each other many times during the week. But when you're scattered across uh, the state, as small as it may be, when you are not in that building together, working together, and you have to develop all kinds of new systems and approaches in order to do your business, um, it's like uh, building an airplane while you're, it's like flying the airplane while you're building it. You know, every day you have to do the work and yet you're building totally new systems that you've never imagined that you would have to build before. So I, hats off from my perspective to uh, the legislature, the legislative leaders, the members of the legislature and the governor and lieutenant governor, because I think they've really pulled together and done a remarkable job overall. And I think, you know, the way things have been going in terms of um, the number of cases and things of that nature, we had some bad luck with that convention that really created uh, that, that bio convention that nobody understood at that point was going to be a major event that was going to create a dynamic in this state and elsewhere. Um, and so our caseload got pretty high there, but I think the governor and uh, his team and the legislature have really been doing tremendous work to try to protect our health and safety and also to keep the government moving in these extraordinary times. I just could not imagine a situation like this. I, I mean, nobody's seen anything like this. So I think we have to give them, first, I think we have to give them a lot of credit. And second of all, I think we have to give them a little room, <laughs> a little room to maneuver and figure out how to keep things, keep things moving. And yeah. There's, there's a big case uh, before the Supreme Judicial Court right now in which some business and education and church leaders are challenging Governor Baker uh, and the actions he has taken through executive order, uh, suggesting that he has overstepped his authority in doing some of the things he has done to try and uh, respond to the pandemic. Do you think the legislature has ceded too much authority and uh, administrative action uh, to the governor uh, where maybe they should be taking some of these steps? Well, I'm assuming that the legislative leadership and the governor meet every Monday or virtually every Monday as they have been for decades. And if that is happening, then there's a lot of communication between the leaders and the executive. And so that had always, those meetings had always served as an opportunity for input and consultation. And the elected leaders, the speaker and the Senate president, the ways and means chairs who are in that meeting, the minority leaders. So you have six legislators in there. And of course, it would be nice if all 200 were in there, but that's not practical. Mm -hmm. So if those six leaders are in touch and hearing and understanding what their members are talking about and kids care about and can carry that into those meetings, then there is a level of input trying to micromanage this by passing bills, a zillion bills, doesn't feel like the right way to go in the middle of a crisis. Mm -hmm. And that's where you have to trust your leadership. And if you don't have faith and trust in leadership, then 
Um, yeah, <laughs> then you have <laughs> leadership, but that's I don't see the I don't see where you know it's the same thing that happened in the crisis uh, when uh, let's see Flaherty Bulger. Um, and a governor at that time, we're not remembering which governor, started these Monday meetings for this very purpose because they were in a crisis and they knew they had to work together and to coordinate. And then they gradually broadened out that circle, bringing in the Ways and Means Chair and the minority leaders. So um, when you're in a crisis, it's all hands on deck, but it's also about trusting the leaders you've chosen to, you know, reflect, to, to, to participate in making these decisions and reflecting your views. And again, these are all the governor's decisions. If, if a bill wasn't passed, they're all the governor's decisions. But he's been pretty good in my experience. He's a good listener. He's not one of those people who isolates himself. And if he hears a good idea, he doesn't care whose good idea it is. He moves forward with it. And he actually usually gives them some credit, which is nice. I've worked with governors who did the opposite. They took the great ideas, they ran with them, and they asked for the crown on their head after the, the idea was implemented and successful. Well, for the record, these meetings have continued that you're talking about, these Monday leadership meetings, by and large. Uh, there was a brief hiatus in August uh, where uh, Beacon Hill kind of took a, a bit of a break uh, for the summer, but uh, no longer in person, but virtually the governor and the, the legislative leadership do talk uh, almost weekly on Monday afternoons. So interesting to hear uh, your insight there into what goes on in these, in these private um, meetings. Uh, I'm curious to ask you, when you were uh, the Senate president and, uh, at the head of that uh, chamber, um, uh, there was a, a, a opinion of the Senate that it was uh, moving towards the left. You yourself certainly embraced a, a progressive agenda while you were in leadership there. Uh, I'm curious what your thoughts are on the state of progressive politics on Beacon Hill uh, now, uh, especially uh, with new leadership in charge. Uh, there is a, a new chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, Senator Michael Rodrigues, who has uh, described himself as being in the boring middle. Do you think progressive politics are still alive and well, or have we seen a uh, an ideological course correction here back towards the center? Um, uh, so let's see. Um, I haven't thought about that question. Um, I guess my, <laughs> my my basic reaction to that is first look at who's getting elected. And I think the elections are tipping in the direction of more, prog more progressives being elected. Mm. Then look at the question of who are in the leadership positions. And um, I, Bob DeLeo has never, tried to misrepresent himself and he was he's never tried to be a chameleon you know he is who he is he believes what he believes and so that's clear uh governor baker um he's a republican and he signed a lot of progressive legislation 
over the last three or four years. <laughs> um, yeah, three, four, five yep. years. Yeah, he signed a lot of progressive legislation. And um, uh, Senator Spilka, as President Spilka, is, um, uh, she sees herself as, uh, I think she sees herself as a pragmatic progressive, um, uh, fiscally responsible, and socially and programmatically progressive. Mm. Um, I, I've watched her over many, many years, and I work with her on many things, and she's got as big a heart as you could have as a Senate president, and she is as fiscally uh, prudent as she needs to be. So, um, but I also do think that when I look at who's being elected, it's more and more progressives. Mm -hmm. The complexion of the body is changing. There's more diversity, more women, and more progressives. And so uh, over time, that's going to affect uh, the direction of the, of the body. Um, uh, my district, by the way, did not consider me progressive enough <laughs> and complained that I wasn't using my position as ways and means chair and later other positions in leadership, including <laughs> Senate president, to push hard enough on progressive, <laughs> progressive agenda, uh, notwithstanding same-sex marriage and the role I played as the chief legislative strategist on that, nor uh, helping to create the most progressive tax package in my uh, last budget uh, as Ways and Means Chair, <laughs> <laughs> nor um, nor uh, the creation of the Earned Income Tax Credit, which when I was chair of Ways and Means and then went on as Senate President to develop the strategy that resulted in increasing the earned income tax credit by 50%. And, and so notwithstanding those examples, my district thought I was just not providing progressive leadership and I needed to work harder as a progressive. Do you think you would be challenged from the left uh, if you were uh, to, to run again in this current political climate? No. <laughs> had, had, my, had my circumstances not uh, had had things not gone sideways, um, I believe my district would have continued to elect me. Since you brought up taxes and uh, Bob DeLeo being uh, Bob DeLeo, exactly who he is, uh, and uh, the Senate being what it is, and, and Senator President Spilka uh, being who you know her to be, were you surprised? that it was the House uh, this year uh, that ended up passing a $600 million package of tax increases to invest in transportation, an issue that uh, you, uh, in the later years of your time on the Hill, were very much engaged in. And it was uh, the Senate where that bill seemed to kind of uh, go and get put on a shelf uh, gathering some dust? So I don't know what happened in the Senate and why that happened in the Senate. But all taxes begin in the House. Yes. So the Speaker had to move first in order for the Senate to take it up. I think the analysis has to be um, what is the Senate thinking and what's their 
strategy because there's usually a strategy involved <laughs> in things and I'm not in a position to to judge. Transportation in the state is a mess and it's one of the two major elements that are comp will compromise the continued growth of our and strength of our economy if it's not fixed. Transportation and housing have got to be addressed. And one of the projects I did after I left the Senate, and in fact, my first project was a research project around the economy of Western Mass. And even out here, where you don't think of transportation and traffic jams being a big problem, transportation is a problem. And given that we have a lot of housing stock and land where housing can be built and communities that are looking for uh, rejuvenation and new life, um, getting people here is the problem. And so until we get rail and get people off the roads and rail can get you from Boston to Springfield to Northampton to Amherst and Greenfield and Pittsfield and North Adams in a time, in time less than you'd spend on the road, people are going to be on the road. And so we've got to shift our priority to public transportation options that will be viable and affordable and reliable to be able to break this logjam. You can't build enough roads and our environment can't sustain the level of pollution it's contributing to to um, our carbon footprint, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, we got to do we've got to do transportation, and you can't do transportation without money. And the governor, the House, and the Senate have to get together. And the sooner they figure it out, the better. But I'm in no position to comment on the Senate's action because I don't know what their internal thinking and strategy is. And you know, are they doing? more research and study to make sure they get the right to make the right choices that could be what's going on um you know so you talk about a shift uh being required to get people on trains to to increase rail access um to get people out of their cars which would also impact uh the state's climate response do you worry uh, what the pandemic uh, has done and, and might do in the future to the momentum that seemed to be there uh, for a, a reform of the state's transportation system as, as people are concerned, frankly, with uh, getting on crowded trains again and uh, getting on, on other public transit, be that buses or, or subway in the city, and are perhaps more likely to want to just get in their car where they can be socially distant uh, and, and safe? It will take years to do the to do the uh, construction projects necessary to expand rail use, uh, both in terms of um, uh, frequency and and capacity, and uh, adding additional locations. The pandemic, we have to hope and expect, is going to eventually be under control to the point that it's going to be like any other health situation, it's not going to drive our all of our policy making and decisions. So it since it takes as long as it takes 
to address housing, to address uh, transportation, make the decisions now, get going, because you're going to, this coronavirus, CV-19, is going to be under control well before people are going to be able to board those trains and buses, etc. So, yes, we have to deal with the CV-19 because it's a real crisis today, but we're not going to be living with this crisis for too much longer. Is it months? Is it a year? You can't stop planning and building for the future. If you do, then you're going to fall behind because there are lots of other people in places that are, are not wringing their hands over CV-19 they're trying to do what they need to do with CV-19, but they're making plans for the future. I mean, for example, this advanced manufacturing project that I, I described clearly that, that I'm working on in Amherst, it has slowed down. Mm. There's, there's no question the progress on it has slowed down. That said, we've taken this period of time to plant a lot more seeds, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the people who are forward-looking are actually stepping up to the plate to help make that happen because it's going to take two years to build this out. So you got to plan for the future. You got to have faith in the future. You have to have faith in our ability to deal with what we have to do today, but you also have to plan for your future. And we have to plan in our families and our homes and our communities and in the state for the future that we want to create because it's going to happen. There will be a future. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's keep moving let's keep moving you have certainly been through your share of uh end of july sessions uh facing a deadline trying to get things done uh of course uh, this year they the legislature extended the session indefinitely but in those waning days of july it certainly appeared that among all the priorities if something was going to get done it would potentially be a major reform of policing in uh, Massachusetts. Uh, that has uh, since stalled out. And while I know that you uh, do not have insight into uh, what uh, is going on in the current negotiations between the House and Senate, I'm curious uh, if you have any thoughts on uh, what could be Im impeding a deal, having worked in criminal justice issues, uh, having worked with a lot of the same stakeholders that are involved in this uh, in this issue now, uh, and knowing what it's like when Beacon Hill tries to move as quickly as it did to address policing uh, this session. What was your take on, on the way uh, the legislature responded uh, to uh, the um, incidents of, of, of police uh, violence against people of color and, and where we are now still waiting for a compromise to be reached? So uh, there's a lot of questions actually embedded in that. Uh, so I, I, I definitely don't know the detail and I don't know the background on the pieces that they we're working on in this bill. So I'm not going to try to talk about the, the policy. In terms of the process, there have to be a lot of very powerful interests who are trying to get um, the most change or the least change at, at the same time. Some people want the most change and other people want the least change. And they're going to be Push, pushing and pulling in opposite directions, making it very difficult 
on the four or five or six or seven key points, whatever they happen to be, one of them ha happens to be this um, uh, immunity is, I think it's called immunity. Yes, uh, the qualified immunity. Issue. Qualified immunity. So those types of issues are very sensitive because you're taking things away from pe people that they think are their, um, their right and necessary for them to do their job. And so let's take this outside of criminal justice for a minute. So every time there's an ed reform bill, um, the teachers unions push back very, very hard on a lot of the changes. And they almost always say they were not sufficiently consulted. And then when the bills come to the floor, they find individuals in the body who, for whatever reason, either passionate belief or political, uh, for political benefit, will pick up those points and try to push to give more to the teachers and or to take more of the things away that the teachers feel we're not good. And, and I can remember hard fought, hard won agreements in a process outside of the legislature, outside, not, not debated on the floors of, the, of either house, but done by a commission or whatever, where the teachers were president, legislators, executive, et cetera. And they got all of these things and they spent months and maybe even years and then everybody walked away from the table, having gotten some of what they wanted, but not all of what they wanted. And then they went to the floor and tried to fight to take out what they had agreed to in the commission reluctantly or to add <laughs> what wasn't agreed in the commission. Well, think about that taking two years or three years to go through that process. How long did they spend developing the bills in relationship to this uh, to this uh, crisis to this opportunity and crisis, so there was a crisis here which pre presented an opportunity for action and change. And now all of the players in that engaged, but how over what period of time did that actually happen? Forming those bills, it it was a blink of an eye. So all of those constituencies who feel they didn't get their say <laughs> are now, you know, pounding on the conference committee and the leaders. So, so it sounds like you're saying you're not entirely surprised that given uh, the, the murder of George Floyd taking place around Memorial Day weekend in, in May, uh, fast forward about two months to the end of July, uh, you're not entirely surprised that uh, this has taken a bit, a little bit longer uh, to uh, to hash out some of these details and work with some of these interest groups to reach a common place. Well, well done, well done. Thank you. That helped. That summarizes what I was trying to say. And one <laughs> other, point, and one other point. Um, uh, give me a second here. Um, so the conference process now is about finding the compromises that will allow the bill to move forward, which means you have to choose A, 
you have to say yes or no to some things and you have to be willing to compromise on other things. And so the interests are trying to get you to say no on certain things and other interests are trying to get you to say yes to the same things. And then, no, and they don't want to compromise. Mm. <laughs> and so the work that could have taken place in a commission over time to try to find the balance between the yes and the no on the same issue now has to take place in the conference committee among six legislators who meet in a private meeting <laughs> with all these people outside hitting them over the head with rhetoric and news stories and letters to the editor and letters from their constituents, et cetera. And then all of their colleagues saying, you better not drop this or you better not change that or I'm not gonna vote for this bill. So good luck. <laughs> well, on but, that but they, note. They'll get there. They will get there, but they need the time to work it through. And on that note, good luck to you as well, Stan Rosenberg. We want to thank you for joining us this week on the State House Takeout. It was a pleasure talking to you, and we hope to do it again soon. Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.